This is the Made It in Music podcast. I'm Seth Mosley, and this is Show 131. Welcome to the podcast, where we bring you tools and resources to help you go full time in music and to stay in. The music business is a roller coaster ride, changing faster than any of us can pay attention to. We all need a competitive edge to stay ahead and to stay successful. What's working, what isn't, and what's coming? That's exactly what this show is all about. Back again with Full Circle Music, the Made It in Music podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Made It in Music podcast. My name is Logan Crockett, and I have a very quick PSA for you. Did you know that we also have a video version of this podcast? Audio is great and all, especially for car commutes, but sometimes you just really want to know what a guest actually looks like and see the whole thing in action. Well... If you haven't done that before, you can. In addition to this audio podcast, we professionally video record them too. You can find the video versions of this podcast at madeitinmusic.com or at Full Circle Music's YouTube channel. So today we have an A&R legend with us, and his name is Steve Robertson. Steve Robertson runs A&R here in Nashville for Atlantic Records, and he's been responsible for working with and developing some pretty big groups, including Collective Soul, Paramore, Shinedown, A Day to Remember, and many more. You're going to hear some interesting stories and ideas about how new music scenes are developing around Nashville, how technology is shaping the music industry in both good and not as good ways, and how difficult predicting hit music can really be. Okay, so let's go ahead and dive into this episode at the Full Circle Music Studios. Here on the Made It Music Podcast, Seth Mosley here with my friend Steve Robertson, uh, A&R. At Atlantic Records, worked with acts like Shinedown, Paramore, and A Day to Remember, as well as many more than that, which we'll get into. Thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Absolutely. I'm very stoked to be here. And I have to say, I'm intimidated interviewing you because you have such a better voice for this than I do. That's right, Seth. (laughs) Is that an acquired thing? Like (laughs) something you've worked on your whole life? It just comes out that way. I was in radio before my job in A&R, and I'm from the Midwest, and I went to school for radio, and in... Lucky for me, when you go to broadcasting school, the first thing they teach you is to have a Midwest accent because really? doing voiceover and being a DJ that moves around the country, they try to give you a middle of the road or middle America or Midwest accent. So I was one up on it. And everybody. where did you grow up again? Fort, Fort Wayne, Indiana, till I was 13. So you kind of already had a little bit of a Midwest. I, that's what thing, I'm saying. Right? I, it was not a struggle. That, that part was not a struggle. The people in there with Southern accents that I had to sort of straighten it out into this sort of. Straight. Were there literally classes on dialect and enunciation? You naturally have, and we'll we'll get off this, I'm just fascinated with people that have a voice (sighs) like yours because it seems like, to me, something that is a practiced... When I'm ordering at Wendy's or whatever, I'm like, yeah, I'll have a cheeseburger. And and, and and I've had, like, are you on the rate? Are you... On commercial, and I'm like, I'm not trying to sound. This is just how you. It's talk. literally how I what I sound like. I love it. Well, um, we'll dive into that. I want to go all the way back to the beginning. What was the moment that music impacted you for the first time, and you knew you absolutely had to, like, make it your life? I'm the youngest of six kids, Catholic Midwest upbringing, and my older brothers, uh, and sisters but my older brothers were all like huge music fans so and i would walk down into the basement and i would see my brother with headphones on just lost this is before i knew what that was but he had you know cord plugged into the receiver and and he had like led zeppelin gatefold album open on his lap and with his eyes closed and just 
lost in it. And so that was always a thing. You're like, that's weird when you're a little kid. And then you, it starts to make more sense. And then my oldest brother was a DJ at the rock station in Fort Wayne, Indiana, W-M-E-E. It, w- it was. I think it's still there. It's not a rock station anymore. He became a DJ. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. And then the moment I felt music touch my soul as a kid where I was, it was an unidentifiable feeling. We've all had it. And it dates me a little bit because this song is actually older. It was an older song. It was already out for a while, but by the time I heard it when I was a kid, it came out in the 60s. It was the Turtles, Happy Together. I can't see me loving nobody but yeah. you, yeah. yeah, Seth, <laughs> all my life. Anyway, that I just every time it came on the radio, I would stand in front of the speaker and just go, just it almost made me lightheaded. Wow. Yeah, intoxicating. Wow. So... From that moment, what was the story that led you into, you know, your career at radio? Um, If that's phase one is radio and then, you know, working at labels is phase two. What led up to phase one? Phase one, uh, yeah, was my oldest brother being the DJ and then me saying, it was because back then, back then, (laughs) it was... If you're a DJ on the radio in a small to medium-sized town, you're a celebrity. Yeah. So when my brother, who didn't live in the house anymore, when he came over to the house, all my friends were like, oh, Tom Maxwell. What was, it, what was his name back then? Tom, I forget what he was going by back then, but Tom from WME is, yeah. is at Steve's house. Yeah. And then we would... Uh, and everybody like, hey, say something. Say, yeah. <laughs> it was like that. Yeah. And I just thought it was so cool hearing my brother on the radio playing records. Yeah. I mean, I think I knew what I was going to do for a living by the time I was like eight years old. So how did you like get a job in that? Like what was the steps in that process? It was the steps. One step was a non-step, which was I had no interest in going to university. I had no interest in going to college. I had no interest in taking more math and science, Mm -hmm. even though I'm inquisitive and a smart person. I just, I don't, that style of learning was was not for me. And the sooner I could be done with that, the better. But I wanted to be a successful career person. We moved to Fort Lauderdale from Miami and I went to high school in Fort Lauderdale. And there was a a college there called Bowder College, which specifically taught broadcasting Mm -hmm. and prepped you for a career in uh, radio. Yeah. So went from that, got hired, did the gigs and everything. What, What I love about your story in radio is that there were sort of hints of what you do now as an A&R person, even back then with like finding, you know, new bands and playing, showcasing new talent. Can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe some, yeah, notable moments or stories from that time? Yeah. The nineties was where it was at for me with that. I started in radio in the eighties down in Miami. I was at a classic rock station for six or seven years. It was a DJ and just playing Led Zeppelin records all day which I love Led Zeppelin and I love Steely Dan and I love all that music. But during the mid eighties, I was getting, you know, I was watching MTV and getting turned on to everything from the cure to flock of seagulls to echo and the bunny men. And then I would go to work and be playing the same Led Zeppelin records every day. And I was really started to get into going and see bands. And that's when the alternative rock format, like mid eighties, that's when I started hearing about K rock in LA and 91X in San Diego. And I actually went on a surf trip to California with my buddy, and I heard K-Rock for the first time. And again, this is pre-internet. So the way you were exposed to new music was a DJ on the radio. 
And when I heard K-Rock playing the Smiths or Morris, like that, I'm on from the East Coast of Florida specifically. Nobody's doing that. And I'm here I am in a huge Los Angeles market listening to music that was just blowing my mind that I'd only heard about or a little bit of. That lit the fire. I was like, I want to I want to program an alternative rock station. I just knew that's what I wanted to do. Long story short, I went to the program director, Neil Mursky, great program director, legendary program director, who was programming Zeta 4 in Miami at the time, which was the classic rock station where I was working. I said, I want to be a program director. And he said, it's funny you would say that. We just bought a new station in Orlando, Florida, and we're going to make it a new kind of rock station. He didn't say alternative rock. He said a new kind of rock station. So I did the interviews, and they hired me as a assistant program director, music director of WJRR in Orlando, Florida. And that's where it started. And I, I had only one goal. They had no interest in making it an alternative rock station because to them that meant no ratings. Yeah. And also they thought that meant it was like a college rock station that was just played eclectic music that nobody cared about. But I've knew, I already had – this is 1991, 92 when we started talking about this. I already had Nirvana Bleach and I already had Smashing Pumpkins Gish and Live's first album. And I just instinctively felt through being a fan this groundswell of alternative – music that I felt could break through. And so my whole goal was to be a DJ and be a program director at a station like that. Yeah. So even establishing that from the first place, I mean, that's sort of an act of A&R, right? You're seeing this talent that's out there, this amazing music that's being made. And you're like, why are we not showcasing this? That's a very good point. That's exactly, that's exactly I didn't know that at the time. Yeah. I just I knew I wanted to be a part of exposing that music. So I had to imagine there was some some bumps in the road, maybe getting people on board with that, as you said, maybe the station itself. Like, how did you achieve success doing that? They hired me, and again, I kept talking about alternative rock. I, they, that was they didn't like that word. They had this huge morning show. I won't go too far in depth, but it was there was a huge. Uh, like Howard Stern-esque morning show that was in syndicated in Florida. It was called, they were called the Ron and Ron show. And the whole station was built on this morning show that they were syndicating into Orlando. So they just said, let's make it a different kind of rock station. Let's not make it a classic rock station. Let's play current music. And that's all it was. Meanwhile, I'm like, there's a groundswell coming that you guys don't know about that take, that will be well beyond like college music or college rock. And so I just sort of selfishly was guiding the station because I had my hands on the controls of the programming um, to add the records that were, you know, I think when we put the station on the air, Stone Temple Pilots, Plush, one of the great songs of the 90s, was just getting going. And I remember the the guy that was like the operations manager, they didn't know anything about this music. And they were looking at the charts about like what records we were making the station in real time. Like, okay, well, let's ask this young Steve-O kid what we should be playing. And they were like, well, what's, what's this Stone Temple Pilots plush? Because it was still climbing the chart. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God. They, did, they literally had no idea what it was. They didn't know what it was. It was brand new. And wow. I just happened to be a huge Stone Temple Pilots fan because I love being early on that stuff. And it went from there. So it was a mess at first. We were playing like... Eddie Money and Stone Temple Pilots and 
Led Zeppelin and, again, a new kind of rock station. Well, anyway, over the a course of a year, the alternative format rose to prominence in the early to mid-90s, and I was able to sort of get my way and turn it into an alternative rock station. Yeah, so in that process, I mean, you, you, you sort of happened upon some pretty amazing artists, whether or not, you know, you want to take credit for discovering them or not. I mean, just even the the story of, of Collective Soul is pretty mar- remarkable. Do you care to share a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, yeah. And, and any others for that matter. So um, when you're the program director of a rock station or of any radio station and you're the music director, it's your job to obviously newsflash <laughs> DJs don't pick the music. And it's still disappointing to people, but they don't or they rarely do pick their own records. Yeah. So there's a program director that does that, and and it's it's by design because then that way you get songs and programming that spread out evenly over the day, and it's in line with how people actually listen to the radio. So yeah, but thank you for clarifying that too, because there, there's a lot of people out there who maybe have no idea. Of that. Yeah, I mean DJs at college stations pick their and non-commercial stations, but if you're listening to a commercial station owned by a big company, that DJ is not picking those songs. Yeah. Maybe for a request show or something like that, they are. So it was that was my job. It, not only was my job to program the music through a, a computer program, but it was also to add the latest current records that you thought would be hits and would also add to the sound of your station and give make it exciting. So that was the best part. Of the, that was the best. We'd have music meetings every Monday and listen to all the latest and pr- radio promotion or um, promotion people from the labels would come through, play their records try to get you to add them. And that part of the job was fun. But we were also getting unsigned bands were sending their their stuff to the station. And I was trying to listen to all that as well. And one day, and again, this is in the 90s, so we weren't getting links to SoundCloud we were or MP3s. We were getting CDs. I'd stacks of CDs all over my desk. And I, I don't know why, but there was a, a CD sitting there and it said Collective Soul. It had terrible artwork on it. And I was like, that is so ugly. I want to find out what that sounds like. <laughs> so so I put the CD in, and it was their full album. And I went through it, and I heard that famous riff from the song called Shine. It's like, I, that just sounds right for the music that we're playing. And then I asked the DJ, our afternoon guy, I was like, hey, man, can you? fit this in and see what happens. Again, the 90s, this is pre-Shazam. So when people got excited about something, they called the radio station and would be like, want to know what that was or what's on the air right now? This song's great. And when you would see that happen on the phones, we had six or seven lines in there. When you would see that happen, you knew that you had something. And that's what happened with Collective Soul Shine. And hey, play it again. I gave it to the next DJ for the next shift. Play this and same thing. So we actually added an unsigned band, which I didn't realize how rare that was because I was still pretty new at the job. We added Collective Soul, Shine. My boss, John Frost at the time was like, I don't care if you think it sounds like a hit, play it. (laughs) Which I was like, great, this is fun. And it totally blew up in Orlando and it started selling the record. They got distribution in Orlando and it started selling. And and then um, Atlantic was really good at sniffing those things out. And so they came down. I remember Jason Flom came down to, we set up a showcase for Collective Soul. Yeah, and maybe give a little context for people who don't know who Jason Flom is. Legendary A&R guy, massively successful, signed like 
Twisted Sister in the 80s and White Lion. And and then he just, Jason Flom just has a knack for once every, I don't, I've never really averaged it out. I'd say every once, every five to seven years, stumbles on Kid Rock, Matchbox 20, Lord, most recently Greta Van Fleet. Listen, I'm I'm okay at what I do, and I've been doing it for a long time. He's just on another level from most people that I know that do this job. But I didn't know that at the time. I just knew this guy named Jason Flom that was a big wig at Atlantic was coming down. Saw the show, Sign Collective Soul, and Shine became a huge song shortly thereafter, like Nationwide. And that's when people started saying to me, people from labels, promotion people, like, oh, like once that song showed up, not just on my playlist, but on charts across the country, they're like, oh my God, you that started in Orlando. You found that. You should do A and R. And I was like, that's awesome. What's A and R? <laughs> and then and then you start reading books and start figuring out how the industry works and that they actually pay people yeah. to find new talent and try to make hits. And so I was like, and I figured out, I bet if I do that again, I have a hundred thousand watt radio station at my disposal and nobody else there knows the mute. Like they just let me add the records that I want. Basically. It's shocking to me how unscientific of a process that sounds like <laughs> not, not, not to take away from, cause it really was your gut and your, your ears and your taste. I guess you could say at the time, the things that you liked resonated with a large amount of people. Yeah. And maybe we even kind of deep dive into that after, after the interview. Cause I think a lot of people are sort of fascinated with how that works and just, how is radio different nowadays than it maybe was back then? Because that had to be a little bit of a rare thing. It, ratings were everything, so they didn't want you to just to add a, if you If you make your station too unfamiliar by adding too many records every week, that's a tune-out for people. When you're a radio station playing current music, you have to balance it with familiar music. The challenge when I was doing it, we put a, uh, an alternative rock station on in Florida in 1993. Everything was new. Like your baseline prior to that, if you started a rock station that played new music, your catalog was Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and Bad Company. Yeah. But in the 90s, it was like that stuff didn't belong, even though it's awesome. It was Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and, and with a smattering of the alternative bands that came before, like The Cure and Thing and The Smiths and things like that. But even that wasn't totally part of this new grunge thing that was happening. So... You know, we had a library of like 120 songs that were actual recent hits. Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit, Pearl Jam, Alive and Black and Stone Temple Pilots and all that stuff. So that was your library, which only came out a few years ago. So you want to keep it familiar and also exciting by adding the, the right records. But if I and, I and I got overzealous and I definitely made the station unfamiliar early on and the ratings went like, oh, okay. so I know what that feels like. Sure. So you have to restrain yourself from being, I love all these records. I need to play them all. You have to be really picky and choosy about what you do because you'll screw up your radio station. Okay. Well, I, th I think you actually could just covered it really good. So we'll do the deep dive on something else. But okay. that, that was great. That, that was a really great one. That way was to, a pre-deep dive. Pre-deep dive. Okay. We deep dived <laughs> in the sidebar of the interview. Anyway, back to our, our, our discussion. So Collective Souls Shine, were there other sequels after that that kind of played out that way and, and sort of led into your A&R Yeah, so I figured if I did it again, it was all about track record to prove that it wasn't a fluke. There was a band from Orlando called Seven Mary Three, and they sent their album 
it was almost the identical story to Collective Soul. I and I listened to the album and I heard a song called Cumbersome, and I was like, that sounds like a hit. And let's play that. And the recording of it back then was not a great recording, but the song itself people reacted to. The same thing happened. Atlantic came down, saw Seven Mary Three, signed him. A guy named Jay Ferris, who was running Mammoth Records at the time, which Atlantic had purchased. Anyway, they came down, signed Seven Mary Three, Cumbersome became a number one song. They sold a million records. And then that was sort of my track record, if you will. Sure. At the time... I was also playing a band called Tabitha Secret that another DJ at another station had turned me on to this guy named Surfer Dave that was a DJ at um he had an all he had an alternative show on Sunday nights on the pop station because alternative rock was this new thing that ever like even the top 40 station had a had their own show like dedicated to playing new alternative rock. It was on Sunday nights, nobody a lot of people didn't hear it, but it was there. And this guy, Surfer Dave, that was a DJ that did that show, I met him out one time and he was like, Man, have you heard Tabitha Secret? And then I heard that. I was like, oh, my God, that could be. And so I started playing this song called 3 AM. They became Matchbox 20. And uh, so I don't take credit for the success of any of those bands, but I'm in there somewhere helping out. Yeah, that's certainly a big, you know, if they, if they would have a book with chapters, that has to certainly have a, a chapter there. There's a chapter there. And that's amazing. So, again, that common thread of you sort of having been an A&R person being – enjoying being on the front end of something that the masses had not yet discovered. And Atlantic obviously saw an immense amount of value in that is amazing. And, and, and that expands into the fact of, of where we're at now. And we'll kind of, let's call phase two getting hired at Atlantic. And let's say phase three is you establishing the presence in Nashville and being on the front end of growing a genre of music, pop and rock in Nashville that largely was in a music city that was country and singer songwriter and Americana. So this is, I can see there's a, there's a common thread throughout your entire story. So let's unpack the second chapter of like, what, how did you get hired? When did you get hired? What, what were some of the things that happened when you, when you got hired at Atlantic? I got hired in 97 or 98 by Atlantic. They flew me to New York first class, which I had never flown first class before. (laughs) I'd barely ever flown before. I was like, oh, this is big great. deal. Yeah, this was like a big deal. Yeah. And then uh, did the interview. And the weird, the interesting part about this is the guy that was running Atlantic at the time, a guy named Val Azzoli, was like, well, we want you to work here. What do you want to do? And I, in the back of my mind, I was like thinking, I really don't want to move to New York, even though I totally would. Like, this is my dream job. I'll move wherever you want me to go. But I just, for some reason, blurted out, I don't know, man, I could stay in Florida and just find bands and all right, great. I was like, really? That was the whole conversation. That was it. <laughs> it was like, so I'll just work out of my house and listen to music and travel around and find bands and hope. And then it's like, yeah, I just want you to sign bands because you clearly got this thing. You got something. Wow. And there was no training. There was no anything. It was like, go sign bands and <laughs> come back amazing. when you have something. Yeah. <laughs> come back when you have something. So, and I already had a band that I wanted to sign. I had a band that I was going to start playing on my radio station, but I got the job at Atlantic and they had a song called live through this. They were called mighty Joe plum and they were from Tampa, Florida. And, but I got the job before I could start playing on the radio. And I took it to the guy that was running A&R at the time. He's like, I like the song. I like the band. They've got nothing going on. They need to have something going on. So that's when I 
kind of became the manager of the band. And I knew all the radio programmers in Florida. And I was like, I'll make a radio story with this because I think this song is a hit. So I got this song, Live Through This by Mighty Joe Plum, added to, I don't know, a all the rock stations in Florida, which I, I was even proud of that. But it started reacting and the same kind of thing started to happen. And then we ended up uh, signing the band because of that story. And then it didn't really happen. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> that taught me... Because you, you start to go, well, geez, if I like it, then that means millions of people will like it. Right. Exactly. And But there's also different ways to screw that up. And yeah. I, I, you start learning that it's not quite so snap your fingers easy, especially when you don't have the benefit of controlling a 100,000-watt radio station. Yeah. Well, and, and it's a different skill, too, because you were curating songs before. I mean, you're obviously curating artists, but... People Very good were, point. People were connecting with the song. It wasn't that if they loved a song didn't mean they would love this person. Right. So I, I feel like that that's a huge element of A&R is like you're going out and hanging out with these people just as much as listening to their music, right? Like, yes, that's part of it. And I found out once you leave a radio station and go onto the label side, you no longer have the benefit, the records that I would get from unsigned bands at the radio station had been produced obviously. And they, and somebody else had done that work. Yeah. Then I realized, well, if I need, if I'm going to find artists before other people find them, I need to identify artists maybe before they have that song. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what, to your point, what I think yeah. what you're getting at. And it's a good point to make because that was one of the big learning curves. I was like, Oh, okay. A, I don't have a hundred thousand. I can't just <laughs> yeah. tell my DJ, go play this, see what happens. Sure. I'm like, now I'm like, I, I still had radio friends that would help me out with things like that, but it wasn't the same. And it was a lot more, I think this is a hit mate. I, let's sure. And convincing your employer to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to see. Sure. If it's a hit, it was a different story. The risk is significantly yeah. higher. You can't just try it, and if it doesn't work. True. Yeah. Well, especially back then, too, with I'm sure the cost of making records was astronomically higher. 100%. Um, so can you talk about the process of when, when you got put in that position? Okay, well, I got to go find some bands. What did you do? Like, where did you start with that? Uh, one of the other learning curves that I had, I thought, well, hey, I'm a big wig A&R guy for Atlantic Records now, and I'm just going to you know, whisper out the window that I'm here and <laughs> the bands will come flocking and I'll just be a magnet for, yeah. cause all bands want to be signed by a major label. These are all naive things that were in my head. And then I realized that you've got to get out there and you've got to really work it and become known. And yes, tons of, you know, on my initial hiring, there was lots of like, Oh, you know, there's an A&R guy in Orlando. Like that, that word did spread, but sure you had to really work to spread that story. And that meant going to conferences and showing up and going out at night and making sure you're meeting club owners and bookers and all these different people that touch bands as they come through town and book bands. So it was a lot more work than I initially thought. Yeah. Because again, I was a program director at a radio station and the records would just show up because mm. it was such a powerful medium Yeah. that you didn't, I didn't have to go find them. It was a they magnet. Just, it was a magnet. They came. Yeah. And so a major label is a magnet, but if you're an outlier A&R guy in a remote office down in Orlando, Florida, you still have to carry a big, bright torch and make sure that you don't miss anything. Yeah. So you were down in Florida, and I imagine eventually you said that first project you signed didn't really work, but then 
something clicked and something worked. What was what was the project where you signed and the record came out? And you I have to hold on, hold that question ahead, because it's directly related to what you just yeah, said, yeah, yeah, and then ahead. we'll get the uh, Mighty Joe Plum, which is the yeah. record that didn't work, and yeah. it's true, the album yeah. didn't sell. That song, the song ended works. up being a top five rock song. Sure. It just didn't sell. Like radio played it, and it didn't sell like the other stuff did, so it fell short there. An interesting caveat to that story about Mighty Joe Plum, my first signing to Atlantic. Yeah. The drummer of that band, great drummer named Mark Mercado, who was this, he, it's always the drummer in these bands <laughs> that, that, that are, that like want to be, they have like the organizational skills. It seems yeah. like to, they're always the one in the band. Well, if they can hit the that many things at the same time, right. it's like, maybe there's a direct correlation. There's a correlation there. <laughs> Banging stuff around and, you know, knowing how to make a flyer and, yeah. and organize things. Yeah. He was that guy and, he went on to become the manager of Paramore, one of the biggest bands I've, I worked with. So okay. I'm proud of helping him along that, but he was always going to be that. So yeah. he and it's it's ironic that the drummer, the first band I ever signed to Atlantic, is now the manager yeah. of one of the biggest bands that I work with. Yeah. So Paramore was was that just you know for our for our audience who maybe didn't doesn't realize was Paramore kind of the first thing that that was on the map with you in this role that was like this is going to work or were there were there steps in between um your hiring and them well yeah listen man i i have a a lot of misses which we don't need to go into sure in this podcast <laughs> or let's just talk about the things that work so we'll talk about the things that work exactly. uh, but no <laughs> but it's an interesting thing to bring up too because I work for great people. Atlantic yeah. is a great label, and and I've had lots of great mentors and leaders and managers that understand that A and R is you're going to fail most of the time. Yeah, and so I'm not shooting for failure, but as long as you have somebody above you that recognizes that, it's like you're definitely you're going okay. to fail. Yeah, there's no doubt in this job you are going to fail, and you might as well get used to it if you can. It's batting average, right? You yeah. can do whatever sports analogy you want to use. You're going to – most things that you pick for one reason or another won't work. So it's inter it's interesting the way that it works. But I – so Mighty Joe Plum and then there's a band out of Birmingham. They were called Virgos Merlot. Mm. Signed them. That didn't work at all. The yeah. drummer from that band, <laughs> and, the, and hopefully listeners will follow along with this because yeah. I'm trying to illustrate how the industry works and how it's such not an exact science. Yeah, yeah. And but the drummer from my second signing to Atlantic was dating this girl from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I was in the studio with Virgos Merlot, and his girlfriend happened to be there, and she came up to me and handed me a CD. And said, I'm from Knoxville. This is my favorite band. This guy's voice is amazing. You should check it out. Hmm. And the name of the band was Dreve, D-R-E-V-E. Okay. And whatever, people handed me CDs all the time. Sure. I was like, great, I'll check it out. And I sat on my desk for a while, finally pulled it out, and then there was this voice. And that ended up being Brent Smith from Shinedown. He was in a band called Dreve out of Knoxville, and it just lit me up. Yeah. And I just love that kind of voice, and it's kind of timeless. I don't care if it's Robert Plant or Chris Cornell. Sure. In rock music, that big... It's a texture, too. Texture, grit, yeah. blues, soul, gospel, yeah. rock. That's just something that worked and something that spoke to me. And this band, Dreve, had a singer in it that, that had... He was like 22 years old. And anyway, 
that could, we could do a whole separate podcast yeah. on shine down and how that happens. So I don't want to spend sure, all this sure. time on one thing, but it ended up, I went to Knoxville and with the help of the great producer, Michael Beinhorn, who was a consultant with Atlantic at the time, I had turned him on to this band and he's like, let's go see him. So we went and saw him and, uh, truth be known and no offense to the band if they ever hear this podcast sure. but the band was not that great but the singer was amazing mm. so long story short i ended up signing brent smith mm. to a, a a solo deal yeah at atlantic mm. knowing full well that it had to be a band like you sure. couldn't just be like a rock solo right artist. it just it wasn't yeah it just brent it couldn't be brent smith yeah which isn't even that great of a name anyway. Right. Like we had, I was like, I believe in you so much. And I've got my boss, Craig Kalman, who also believes in you. I want to put you on a songwriting tour, help you learn how to write better songs, help you find your band. That's the beautiful part of a, having a budget yeah. to take, to pull a kid out of Knoxville, Tennessee, and just say, I believe in you and to help guide them. Yeah, It's his vision. I didn't do it. I just rode shotgun and scheduled things and helped things. And then he's the one that said, I think it's called Shinedown. You know what I mean? I think. Wow. And then and I, I had moved him to Jacksonville, Tennessee, which is where Limp Biscuit was and Cold was coming out of there. Never mind Leonard Skinner from back in the day. And yeah. there was this rich history of rock music coming out of Knoxville. And so I, we started doing demos there. And that's where we found the band. And yeah. So that's the. The very brief story of how Shinedown became my first success as an A&R person at Atlanta. Yeah, and many critically acclaimed successful releases later. That's 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 been a great, great signing. And Thanks. Yeah, you've got Paramore. You've got A Day to Remember. Can you talk a little bit about, um, and then I do want to kind of close out talking about maybe just how you've even been on the front end of, of, of bringing that into Nashville bringing pop and, and alternative to a city that largely has been country music and singer songwriter and Christian music. Can you talk about maybe the why behind that? So I started at Atlantic in 1997 or 98 and that was the, almost the peak of the CD compact disc era of the music business. And the music business was just on fire with alternative rock the boy band thing was massive and C and the CD was a huge financial boon to the yeah. industry yeah. as we know. And then, uh, until it wasn't. And then when it wasn't, it crashed yeah. hard. So the reason I answer your question that way is because I had already been going to Nashville. I had signed a band from Nashville from Franklin, actually Paramore. And once the, the peak had crested and then, and then Napster came yeah. and then Napster came like it was a monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At the time, I mean, <laughs> at the time it was like, it was like, what is yeah. that? And people are not going to buy CDs pretty soon. And then, um, which is what happened. So the reason that's relevant to my story in Nashville is that my buddy, my good friend, Tom Storms, who was my A&R colleague at Atlantic on the West Coast, he's who I originally signed Paramore with. Mm. And the industry was going through massive downsizing because of the crash of the CD and online distribution. And, and Atlantic was no different. And through just giant staff cutbacks, he ended up losing his gig. And then, and then he called me shortly after and was like, and he and I had been coming to Nashville to see Haley Williams and Paramore and, yeah. and help them with their records and all that. 
And he called me up and said, man, I'm moving to Nashville. He goes, I, I think, I think LA's, you know, done for right now. I'm, and I think there's a new thing happening in Nashville, which he and I had talked about before. I was like, whoa, that's amazing. So he did. And then he and, and I had a handful of other friends that were moving here. And I started hearing from boots on the ground. Yeah. Hey man, there's something really going on here. Like there's people are moving here, rock people and pop people because of the downsizing of the industry, New York and LA folks were like, I just need to reinvent myself. I'm going to go to Nashville. Mm. So that helped inform me like this weirdo A&R guy that was in Orlando, Florida. I was like, well, I still don't want to move to New York. I love California, but I'm trying to raise my kids and I'm trying to have a good lifestyle. And we know how expensive it is in LA. Mm. So over time, it made more and more sense for me to, at this stage of my career, to get out of Florida. That was done. Like. Yeah. For a while, for a brief while, it made sense for me to be there. There was so much music coming out of there. I was in Orlando, which was, again, the boy band. Like, that's where that right. was all made. I, it thing. had nothing to do yeah. with it, yeah. but it was sort of a center of gravity of yeah. industry in Orlando that made it make sense. And then all that went away. I was like, I got to get out of here. Yeah. And so ultimately it became uh, Nashville for the reasons I just talked about. Yeah. From, I had lots of friends coming here, and they were like, it's still driven by country music. Yeah. And Christian music, which yep. we had known for a long time, but there's a new thing happening, and I wanted to be a part of that. Well, I love it, and and you you absolutely have been. Can you can you talk maybe a little bit about any of the the the, the hurdles and, and and difficulties into maybe expanding that, or maybe the maybe the better way to ask is, are you sort of just following something that's organically happening, and you're like, I want to be a part of that, whether it's in Nashville, whether it's in Orlando. Yeah, I think as an A and R guy, that's that's what you do. Yeah, you look for trends and try to be a part of those trends that make sense for your musical taste. Yeah. So yeah, and as time was going on, I'm like, oh, I'm not a country guy, but there was a significant sliver of country and Americana that was I was loving. Yeah. And Casey Musgraves' first record was something that really I just fell in love with, and over time, I started my ear started to perk up for Jason Isbell and I was like this is all and lots of stuff that Dave Cobb was doing mm-hmm. started to become more and more a part of my personal taste and I was like well that's all in Nashville mm-hmm. and it seems to be a trend never mind the fact that I just dig that music yeah so that was a, another part of it like you, you it's interesting working for a major label and being paid for your taste in music and your gut reaction to it yeah, is uh, you, you know, for most people that's a side. That's a I listen to records when I go home, and but the fact that my career and my life path is driven by me acknowledging that oh, I really like this type of music and it's happening over there. I should go over there. Yeah, was uh, yeah. a big part of the drive. To get that's here. awesome. Well, you you've clearly had a very successful radar, and and yeah, as you mentioned before, nobody's gets everything right 100% of the time. I mean, you're the fact that, you know, I, I can relate as a songwriter, the fact that we can walk in and if we had 29 out of 30 days in the month where, like, if only one out of 30 was a hit, that would be a wildly successful month. Yeah, for, that's the business we're in. Yeah, for us as songwriters. Especially now, there's just there's so much. It's redundant to say it, but I, I, I and, and we have curators and, and Spotify has amazing people that do playlists and yeah. Apple Music and there's people in place to sort 
to sort it for you. Yeah. But it's still a lot. It's a ton. It's a ton of music, and it's a good thing, and it's also, you know, not too long ago when we started this interview and when I started my career in yeah. the 90s and, and, and before that, there was one big fat pipe that labels would push their music through. It's yeah. called radio. Yeah. And then the only way that people had to find out about it was to listen to the radio. So I'm not saying that that was a better time necessarily, yeah. but it was easier for, certainly easier for the labels to prioritize and get music out there and expose it through the radio and then put it in a store, which clearly that's blown completely out of the water now. Sure. But it was also easier for consumers mm. because radio was the only outlet they could really, a song that maybe they didn't even like at first would be on their favorite radio station every day for months. And then they, it would finally just become a part of the soundtrack of their life. Familiarity. Right. Yeah. Familiarity would sink in and then they, maybe they'd buy the record or maybe they'd buy the ticket to the show. But, and now it's this, you know, I'm on Spotify every day and Apple Music and, and I, sometimes I play the role of consumer. I'm like, how, how do I even... How do you filter New it? Music yeah. Friday... There's hundreds of new songs every week. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it is amazing, but it's difficult. Overwhelming. As we're kind of rounding out, we're going to dive into our lightning round. But as a deep dive, I'd love to know, as, as I, I'm sure a ton of our listeners would love to know, nowadays, what do you look for in an artist that makes them signable? Specific skills, metrics? Obviously, you know, radio maybe maybe still part of the live show. So we'll dive into some of those specifics in our deep dive. If people want to get access to that, just go to madeitinmusic.com, go to the show notes page. But let's dive into the lightning round. Lightning round. Let's go. Uh, first concert you ever went to? First concert was Steve Martin. I grew up in the 70s, partially in the 70s. And Steve Martin was a massive rock star and was a huge idol for me. And I bought all of his albums, and he came to Fort Wayne, Indiana, to play the Coliseum there. And yeah. so, technically, that was my that was my first concert because that was the first ticket that my parents bought for me, and it was a big celebrity, like a huge cultural thing coming to yeah. Fort Wayne. So, and he did King Tut and all the. It was just I I still love Steve Martin. He's one of my heroes. But aside from that, in high school down in Florida, I was in uh, Florida at the time, and Jethro Tull okay. was my at the Hollywood Sportatorium right outside Fort Lauderdale. That's good. That's one of the Aqualongs, one of the songs my dad introduced me to when I was growing up. Good and, taste. Yeah. So uh, that was good. And the Steve Martin uh, book is on my reading list. I haven't read it yet. Oh, Born Standing I've Up? It's, it's awesome. Amazing. Yeah. So. If, yeah. If you would have to be a fan in some degree to really – but. Yeah. It, it's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, top trait in successful artists that you work with? Top trait in successful artists that I work with. Or that you have worked oh, with. Oh, it's, it's, it, well, it's easy and obvious. I, I'm actually trying to search for an alternate answer, but it's, yeah. the, it's it, the voice. Mm. It's always the voice. And people are always like, what are you looking for? Like, oh, you're an a &R, What are you looking for? Great voice singing great songs. Mm. I don't care if it's rock or pop or country or whatever. It's the voice. Yeah. And they don't even have to technically be a great singer, which both Haley Williams and Brent Smith both are ama have amazing yeah, range, and they are just phenomenally great singers. But I'm trying to think of an example. Sometimes just the tone. Like, I don't even know. I don't didn't sign Casey Musgraves, but I'm a huge fan. Yeah. And I listen to her records, and I think 
if you're really picking it apart, she's not like some amazing, she's not Adele. There's no vocal acrobatics happening. That's right. But just the, her head, just the tone and the way it comes out of her head and out of her mouth and out of her chest, like it's fascinating to me. Yeah. The sound of the human voice, which is maybe why I got in radio in the first place and maybe I like doing voiceover. I'm always, yeah. I think people in general are, I'm not special about it, but I, I'm very aware of how drawn to the human voice I am. Yeah. Whether it's a voiceover guy on on TV, I'll be like, oh, that's that actor. Yeah. I recognize that voice yeah. or it is certainly singing voice, which is yeah, is the thing. So that's that's a great answer. Okay. One that most a lot of people probably skip over because yeah, yeah, that's to me is very basic. Yeah, but. that's awesome. Um, top goal for this next year, and it can be it can be personal, it can be professional, it can be my top goal. Yeah, is to um, I've got a lot of baby artists. Okay, that I've been developing. Yeah, and. So I, since I've been in Nashville, I've signed bands yeah. from here, as you might expect, because sure. there's the, there's such a deep pool of talent. But I have this band, Betcha. Yeah. I keep saying I signed them out of Belmont College. A couple of them went to Belmont, but they were sort of part of the whole Belmont scene. Um, I have an amazing pop singer named Galaxara. That, um, G-A-L-X-A-R-A. Galaxara. There's no music out yet. Okay. Maybe by the time this is up, this is up. Yeah, there might be Galaxara music out there. If there is, we'll link to it in the show notes. She, good. So uh, that'll be the start of it. That'll yeah. be the start of the fire. No, yeah. this girl, I signed her at fifteen. Her name is Galaxara, and she is equal parts Freddie Mercury and wow. Lady Gaga. Oh wow! If and if I may be so bold, yeah, you you may. Thank you. I'm looking forward to hearing <laughs> that. So Galaxara, I signed a band out of Virginia called Illiterate Light who are a duo in, I guess, in the same vein as Black Keys. There's a, a drummer and a guitar player, and they don't sound like Black Keys at all, but it's that format, and they, but they sound more like My Morning Jacket meets um, Flaming Lips and Cage the Elephant and mm. those kind of bands. So that's Illiterate Light. That music is out now, so I'm very excited about that. Josie Dunn is another Nashville yeah. signing. Yeah. So we are, she's already out there, and she just had a big feature with Matoma and... So Josie Dunn is something I'm very excited about. I signed another artist with Dave Cobb, actually. To oh, cool. We have a, a label with Dave Cobb or a label deal with Dave Cobb. Yeah. He has a label called Low Country Sounds. Hmm. And I had found this Nashville artist out of Belmont College named Savannah Conley, hmm. who I turned Dave on to, and he loved it. So we signed her, and we're making her record right now. And, then, and there's another band called Wilder Woods yeah. that I think is going to blow a lot of people's minds. Yeah. That, that'll be coming out um, soon. So the goal being just break them, break, get, get the baby bands. To... Those are the, what, yeah. What other goal could I have? Like yeah. professional goal. That's all I live for get is to break there. artists or get them to the next level. And so those are some of the ones that, yeah, it's a great, that, uh, great goal. I'm excited about. That's awesome. Uh, first job you ever had. First job was a uh, bag boy at Publix in mm. Fort Lauderdale, Florida. All right. Not a, an amazing story. Congratulations. Thank you so much. It was the <laughs> launching pad yeah. for not training me for any, any part of this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, and lastly, is there anyone in music that you've wanted to meet or work with that you haven't yet? Yeah, you it know, could, uh, could be artists, could be professional, it could be anybody. It could be anybody. And I've met a lot of the, of the great ones. I have this weird fantasy of meeting Eddie Vedder. Okay. Because... Uh, yeah. Not, I, I, being in radio and doing this, I, I've, I've met lots of famous people, musicians mainly, 
And I don't know. I'm just such a huge Pearl Jam fan. I admire. So he never came through the studio. He no. They they were so massive that they were so like any like oh they're coming through Orlando. Why don't you come by? That that lots of other artists did. Lots of big artists. Yeah. But the Pearl Jam just didn't function that way. Well, let's make sure to tag Eddie Vedder on social media. Tag this. Eddie <laughs> you never know. <laughs> he put it out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I won't go on long about Eddie Vedder. Yeah. I know that's not why we're here. Yeah. But just being in the in the industry and 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 loving Pearl Jam since the first moment I heard it, and then reading interviews with him where he would talk about the records that influenced him, and they're the same records that influenced me. And and he's a great artist, and I'm not, but. I feel like I have some like the Who Quadrophenia was one of his big albums, huge album for me when I was in high school. And the things that he would name check, it's interesting to make that correlation because I, Pearl Jam's music makes me feel the same way as the records mm-hmm. that he grew up it's on. Those influences. It's, yeah, it's interesting how that works. It's almost an identical feeling Yeah, when I listen to Pearl Jam as I due to the who in some of those early albums man it kind of reminds me as we're as we're closing out of that great quote i think isaac newton or something if i if i see further than anybody else it's because i'm standing on the shoulders of giants there you go and that's so much what everything we work on nowadays is yes you can't influence be whether you're an artist or do what be or an a&r person that's had whatever level of success you you can't oh i i did this all by myself yeah you, it's no way to live your life no matter what you do. Yeah, exactly. Humility, being humble, and and that's a great quote yeah. that is a, a great way to sort of round things out. Yeah. Well, Steve Robertson, Atlantic Records, thank you so much for being on the Made It Music podcast with us. You're welcome, Seth. And uh, yeah, for our audience who really wants to deep dive into what do you look for that makes an artist signable, you touched a little bit on it, but we'll dive, just spend three or four minutes talking about that in the post-interview. They can find the show notes for this show at madeitmusic.com. So thanks again, Steve. Thank you, Seth. All right. Hopefully you learned a few new things about A&R, discovering bands, and predicting the hits. Our deep dive with Steve Robertson specifically looks at artists and what really makes them signable. If you are an artist and it is your dream to one day be on a major record label, you'll definitely not want to miss hearing what A&R executives like Steve are looking for. You can hear everything he has to say about signing artists by logging into our deep dives, and you can do that at our homepage at madeitinmusic.com. Again, that's madeitinmusic.com. You can also get the show notes and resources for this episode at madeitinmusic.com slash 131. All right, normally we end episodes with some music, and sometimes, of course, we're interviewing industry pros who don't have music released to their own, so sometimes we might show you a highlight of something we're working on here at Full Circle Music, And sometimes we might actually feature some of you, our listeners. For those of you who don't know, we do offer production services available to independent artists and songwriters through a special program we call Bridge House. Bridge House is specifically designed to help independent artists create songs that are ready for the radio and ready to be shown to industry pros. To make it in this industry, your songs have to sound absolutely professional, and that's what we offer through Bridge House. So on some of these shows for season two, we're going to feature some Bridge House projects as we outro these episodes. So for today, enjoy Down by Ariella Silver. Silver.